Hello, and welcome to CAA Conversations. Today, I'm excited to talk with Jay Buchanan, Holly Gableman, Caroline Giddes, and Clarissa Chevalier as they talk about collaboration, finding purpose, occupying intermediate space, and making noise together. Jay Buchanan is a theorist, poet, and an arts orchestrator. Holly Gableman is an artist, writer, and asker of questions. They are the co-creators of Idiosyncrasy, a podcast and collective sonic artwork. Caroline Geddes is a writer, emerging curator, and art historian of the long 19th century focusing on intersectional feminism. Clarissa Chevalier is an interdisciplinary researcher, writer, and art historian specializing in modern and contemporary ecological art. They are the founders and co-editors of Tesseray Press, an online arts publication for emerging creative voices. Welcome, everyone. Okay, hi there. I'm Jay Buchanan. I'm a, a theorist, um, poet, uh, sort of art historian, um, and I'm one of the co-creators of Idiosynchrony. I'm also a grad student at Washington University in St. Louis. Yeah, hi, I'm Holly. Um, I'm a theater maker, an artist, a writer, and a question asker. I'm finishing my second year at WashU, and I am the other half of the Idiosynchrony creation team. Hi, my name is Clarissa Chevalier. I'm a writer, interdisciplinary researcher, and art historian specializing in modern and contemporary ecological art. I'm set to begin a PhD program in art history in the fall of 2021, and I am the co-founder of the online arts publication, Tesserae Press. Hi, I'm Caroline Giddes. I'm an emerging curator, writer, art historian, researcher, um, and I'm the other half of Tesserae Press, um, recent graduate of SCAD, my master's, and I just curated a show at the Delaware Art Museum coming up in March, so that's exciting. I saw that, I think that's so fantastic. I, I can <laughs> sort of read about it. Thanks. Great, so I mean, right, both of our projects, Idiosynchrony and Tesserae are kind of born of the COVID-19 era. Um, and so I did, I guess, when I was like thinking about, you know, how the CAA conversation space might be used like productively by by someone in my position, I was kind of thinking, right, this is this is a great time to sort of talk about this moment and the different kinds of projects that have come out of it that maybe wouldn't exist otherwise now. Um, and so even as we hope they're going to have these like really long and, and fulfilling kind of artistic uh, and, and like um, intellectual lives after the COVID-19 moment that they are like inevitably bound to this time and the sort of the, the ways that we've been forced to like create new ways of relating to each other in it. Um, and so, yeah, I guess maybe if y'all want to start out like Tesserae folks, like, uh, tell us about, about the press. Like, what do you, what do you do? I've, I've published with Tesserae once before. I guess that's a, a disclaimer. Um, but it was a poem, a sort of ekphrastic art historical poem um, that was really strange and, and fun. And I was looking for a place to publish it. Um, and I came across Tesserae and I was like, oh, okay, this will, this will be perfect. Like they get this, um, which, because it's right. It's like not exactly a work of art, not exactly an article. Um, although y'all do do articles too. Right. But, um, but yeah, like I, I guess I was looking for, um, a, a place that was going to be okay with an experimental form of, of, of writing and research. Um, and that's sort of where I stumbled upon y'all. 
And your piece was one of our favorites, actually. <laughs> we had a great yeah, time so reading and publishing it. Um, that's definitely a theme for the magazine is kind of the things that slip through the cracks, the things that don't fit in other spaces that don't, you know, that other publications maybe wouldn't accommodate or would ask you to change. Um, we kind of, we want that stuff. We want the weird. We also want the traditional like art historical analysis, you know, in-depth research. Um, but yeah, we really, we saw that gap in kind of a place for all that, that stuff that gets overlooked should go. Yeah, definitely. And going off of that, I think it was really important for us that we embrace the kind of like experimental, like stream of consciousness side of art historical writing that doesn't have enough spaces. Um, in my past research, I've read a lot of artists writing about their art and they always did it in such fascinating, interesting ways um, that weren't necessarily following like the standard research paper like format. And so it was really important that we create a space that can put those somewhere. So when we got your poem, it was exactly like what we wanted. We wanted this exact kind of like strange, not quite research, not quite creative writing. Um, Sometimes you don't even know how to format it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, like make, like have fun with footnotes, like do whatever weird stuff you want. I mean, for us, it was probably a reaction to getting out of grad school as well, like graduating and like not being confined by the like schedule and requirements of the assignments to suddenly be like, oh, we can do whatever we want. Like we have the degrees, we know what we're doing. Like we can just create a space to, you know, embrace all sorts of weird, funky formats. <laughs> and so the two of you met at SCAD, right? In that yeah. program. Could you talk yeah, like, a little yeah. bit about that too? That's something else that, that our collaboration kind of shares with y'all's. Yeah, we, we touched on it kind of a bit um, in a feature we had on Power Clash Art, um, where kind of like, you know, grad school is this niche environment where you go to study the thing you're passionate about. You meet other people that you're like, where have you been all my life? You're so weird. I love it. Um, and so everyone's kind of like in this like brain sink and we, I don't know, we hit it off. We had a nice crew um, of fellow art history grad students. And I don't know, I miss those days all the time because it was so constantly inspiring each other, constantly um, supporting each other, coming to each other's events kind of thing. And so leaving that was kind of hard. It was like leaving home and now you're in this big world where you're like, no one has to read my stuff now. Who will read it? <laughs> yeah. For sure. So, right. I mean, Holly and I are both grad students at WashU in St. Louis, um, too. And that's right. That's sort of where we met. It's in, in the Masters in Theater and Performance Studies. Um, but... Holly, would you, would you like, you're, I feel like you're very good at telling like the sort of origin story of it, the way that it came, like it came into being. Um, Cause right, we, we were also just like kind of itching for some collaboration, I guess, when everything got shut down um, and like other, other sort of employment opportunities. Anyway. So yeah, Holly, 
Yeah. So Jay and I knew we wanted to do some sort of art together. Um, I'm primarily a theater maker, so we knew that would have to have some sort of element of like theater or theater type practices. Um, yeah. And we, employment wasn't really an option <laughs> at the time, like a lot of internships um, that we had looked at or jobs, you know, obviously had fallen through because of the pandemic. And so Jay and I like talked for a long time about the kind of art that felt important. And we actually floated the idea of doing like a journal collaborative publishing database type thing for a little bit. And that was interesting, but it didn't feel right. And we kind of landed on this like idea of voices and time. Time became really interesting. And so, yeah, it, it really, I don't think we could have done this any other summer. Um, and it's, it really is a project that's born of this, of this moment. Yeah, ours too. Um, very much came out of COVID-19. I just realized that we talked about grad school and then never explained afterwards how Tesserae came to be. But very similar thing, like we both found ourselves on the other end of graduation with very few opportunities, even less due to the pandemic. Lots of really intense competition because everybody um, is applying for everything. And we wanted to create like purpose for us, but also for other people. I think that's one of the, probably the most beautiful intersections between our two projects is it seems like both of them gave people in the arts purpose during the pandemic. Like here's something you can work on. Here's a place that wants to hear about it. Um, and it, from there, like all of these beautiful connections, especially, you know, meeting you two as well have come from trying to create a space to give people in the arts purpose during the pandemic. I think yeah, we're, oh, sorry. No, I was just gonna um, say one of the, the most beautiful things about idiosyncrasy is that, you know, creating a space for people to share their lives, share their work, you put that so well. Um, and it's true, like when you feel like you're locked up, no one can hear from you, here's a space for that. We want to hear the intricacies of your life. So I think that's, that we, they really are so similar. Well, and I was going to say another similarity too, is like this, this idea of reflection, right? Um, I don't know if this has been the experience that y'all have had, but for the people that I'm kind of around, we've talked a lot about how you can't really do anything but reflect because there's sometimes it seems like there are not a lot of steps forward that you can take. And so idiosyncrasy has kind of become a way for people to reflect apart but together and and see how you know we're all kind of thinking through some similar themes but also our all of our experiences are so radically different and i think kind of your um tessery also gives people an opportunity to think through things um both together and apart that was my thinking too holly it's like you can both are giving folks this kind of new way of thinking out loud with other people that that of course in y'all's case, it is still a formal publication process, but it is one that's right. Like thinking about being a more, like a, creating a broader umbrella um, for, for understanding what like, what what research publishing can mean or what, like how far it can go. Um, and idiosyncrasy too, is it's, it's like a way of making noise together. Um, so that it's not that these things are being shared as like drafts or as like not fully formed, but they're things that are taking on a form that we maybe haven't thought about. Um, because right, like necessity as mother of invention and all that. I'd be curious to hear if you guys had a similar experience we had in that when we first started this up, 
we had kind of this like imposter syndrome moment where we were like, are we allowed to, is this okay? Like, what do we, what steps do we need to take to say that this is peer reviewed? Like we're peers, we're going to review it. Is it like, we're, I suppose we do have the degrees, but there was definitely like a few weeks where we had to hype each other up. One of the reasons why I would never do something like this alone. It was so important to have a collaborator that I could FaceTime at 11 p.m. the night before our first article and be like, nobody's going to think this is stupid, right? Like, it's not stupid. She really did. Uh, <laughs> like, because we're just, especially if you're going to be like entering the arts, history, publication sphere, there's so, there's such a sense of authority and like, this is the way that this is done. And we were starting from zero with no name and nobody knew us. Um, and so, you know, it was, it was really kind of scary at first to go, to go into that. So I'd be curious to see how that changed for you too, because of what you were doing being more of like a sonic artwork and less of like a journal. Sure. I mean, there was definitely some trepidation. I think there is a difference in that, right? Like Holly and I have both come from like a history of theater practice. And so that is um, right. Y'all were coming out of, of a history, of course, of, of writing and doing art historical research. Um, but right, like maybe maybe not from the place of having like established and run your own press before. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we were coming at this with with like a mindset of we're going to do this like this is we want to make we want to make an artwork. Um, but definitely, like, I think as it started to grow at, at first and as it sort of became a collaboration that involved more and more individuals, it was a little bit like, oh, gosh, like, are we real? Are we doing this? Is this um, is this like a, a grown up project? Like, you know, um, or, you know, right, because it definitely doesn't feel like a school thing. It doesn't feel not not to diminish a school project, certainly, but but right, it feels bigger. It feels like it's outside the the strictures and parameters and also the guide rails of, of that space. Um, so I guess, yeah, I mean, a, a similar kind of nervousness. I guess both of those points make me think that like idiosyncrony and tesserae occupy like, um, an intermediate space. Like it's not a full theatrical production. It's not a full academic journal with all the rigors that come with that. Um, but it's also not, um, I guess like a personal blog or like a, like a audio journal uh, of just one person. And so I think the, the kind of like intermediate space is an important aspect of that because it's another part that falls through the cracks. Um, you know, people can't take the jump to fully produce their work or fully share their work or finish it, but they're also not going to shine the spotlight on themselves. So by making it like really collective, it actually has made such a difference. <laughs> like I couldn't just launch my own brand or anything like, needed a partner, needed other voices. I think this collaboration that you talk about is so key, right? Like this isn't just Jay and I audio journaling to ourselves. This isn't just y'all, you know, reflecting on each other's work or maybe publishing it as a blog. It's like a, it's a, it's a collaborative effort. And I think one of the things that Jay and I have found really exciting about it, and I'll be interested to hear about y'all's experience as well, is 
how can we imagine a better way of working as part of this? You know, like how can we make the structure of our process and the way that we deal with our collaborators and our websites the kind of place that we want to see in the world and the kind of work that we want to do? And I think being outside of an institution, like Jay said, it's not a school project. It's something that we really get to imagine on our own terms. Um, there's no institution showing us how to do it. You know, you kind of have to make your own way and imagine it. I'm we interested to see about to hear about y'all's process there. Yeah, like how did how did you kind of organize Tesserae together? Mm -hmm. You know, like like in a brass tacks kind of whether that's you know founding documents or policies or contracts or anything. You know, um, like Holly and I went through a pretty lengthy process of like spelling out in document form like what does this collaboration mean to us and for the other people we're going to work with. Um, and it's very clear that y'all have those ethics. So what were those conversations like? Yeah, in the beginning, um, we decided that we wanted to draft a manifesto and our first kind of like article post would be this manifesto as a helpful exercise for us to get down on paper what our thoughts were, our kind of like ideology when approaching the publication. Um, and of course also to broadcast that out to the internet of emerging writers and see if it resonated with anybody. Um, definitely one of the most interesting things on our part and most surprisingly difficult to navigate was collaborating with strangers and how do we navigate the process of wanting to accept everyone but also obviously you can't accept everything you get in. I think that's a difference between us because I think with your project is it could do you just do you accept every audio recording that wants to come in? As long as there's nothing, you know, violent or derogatory in it, um, we yeah. do tend to try and create like a kind of consistent, even if it's only sort of one episode of, of idiosyncrasy that a contributor participates in, we do try to form like a, a fairly formally recognized relationship where it's like, you are a contributor, you have rights as a contributor, um, you know what I mean? So it's, a, you know, we would take anything anyone wanted to say barring some some obvious exceptions um but usually the relationship will not begin at the point of submission there would be a little conversation back and forth first um about you know what times might work for instance um and just to make sure and in the way that right y'all are oppressed you're gonna get you're gonna get the first contact as hi i'm jay here's my poem about toilet paper art, um, decide what to do with me right now. Um, is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah, like we had never dealt with strangers sending us their work and us needing to give them feedback and immediately accept it or maybe not accept it immediately and explain why. Um, so that process of suddenly being on the other end of the submission line, whereas both of us had always just been sending things to people suddenly being the ones that have everything in our inbox and having to read through it was an unusually challenging experience. Like we really had to create kind of an ethos from the ground up for how we would deal with people. Um, and, you know, it, do you want to speak a little bit to that, Caroline? Yeah, no, it was, uh, it was definitely one of our biggest learning curves, I would say, um, because at first we were like, you know, surely this is uh, perfectly researched. They've got the notes, they've got everything included. You know, they looked at the 
the uh, call for submissions. And so sometimes we, you know, we'd read through it and be like, wait a minute. Um, this needs a little bit of work. One of our biggest things that we wanted to do with Tesseray was make it also a space for learning. So obviously like we're all emerging something and a lot of people, you know, need the guidance, want the guidance, need, um, you know, we just want to help each other. It's very much a, hey, I'm submitting my work. It, it might be crap. And we read it, think it's great, but know how to make it better and want to make it better so that they go on to be able to publish with bigger publications or just feel confident about their work. But one thing we had to learn to do kind of was set boundaries with that because we would automatically like edit a piece of work, you know, accept it uh, and then request the edits for them to send back to us for the publishing date. Um, sometimes we wouldn't hear back from people. And so we would be like, wait a minute, we just spent hours of, you know, our free time really hours. to help this person. And then just poof, they're gone. And so now we have now we have a policy of if the, the article needs enough reworking, we give them the opportunity. Like we offer, you know, we like your piece, but it needs a little bit of editing. It needs a little bit of reworking. Will you accept those edits and work with us to rework it so that we can publish it in the future? And so now it's kind of the, we want to help you, but we want to make sure that, that you will get back to us. <laughs> so that was, yeah, it was a tough lesson to learn. And there were a couple of times where we were like, did they not like it? Did they think we're bad editors? I don't know. It reminded us of the uh, imposter syndrome a few times. Yeah, in the beginning. But basically we were always trying to create ways forward. Like we never wanted just a no, because in my experience, sending work to publications, that was one of the most frustrating things is never hearing back or getting a no, but no reason why. And so it's like, well, what do I do with this thing that's been rejected? Is there something wrong with it? Is it just not fitting their theme? Like you never really find out. Um, so when we created our own platform, that was something that we wanted to remedy a little bit in our own space. Like here's a tentative no, not really, but here's what you can do to get it to a yes. I like that a lot. I think that makes a lot of sense. And and right. I mean, things are things are a bit different on our end on on that particular front because in some ways we are we are wrapped up in like the liveness of a particular like given time of day that someone might be experiencing. Um, and so like we're we're going in and Holly is really good at this. That she's our our sort of artistic director and in, in charge of like sound design and and, and also like all of our graphics. But Holly goes in and like thinks through um, the ways that folks' experiences can be best woven together. Uh, and so there is like a curatorial process and I kind of help facilitate that. But we're never, we're never kind of, you know, we're never warping what anybody said. And, and to revise, of course, is not to, to warp. Um, but we aren't going in and saying like, we're going to change what you said here or here. We're, we're pretty much going to just like wholesale take chunks of it and like intersperse them. Um, in a mosaic. 
but right I mean there is still that you still have to like develop a relationship with someone where you can expect that they're going to communicate with you and that they're going to get back to you on time um you know we we sort of have a a moment where we say like okay you're going to be a contributor here's what we need from you like how many how many episodes do you want to participate in or, or whatever and right like things change and things come up and you want to have you want to have an ethics of collaboration that's like supple enough to care about people but you do also have to say like right like we're working on we are working on a timeline uh and it is our time that we are spending to do this and so like if we don't have you know your sound submission for whatever episode that that you said you were going to work on by you know this point maybe we can't use it, maybe we need to, you know, maybe we need to think about something else or, or maybe we need to edit it later. But yeah, like you have to be able to be flexible but still have the boundaries that are like required to keep you safe and keep your, your collaboration at core like working for, for all the people that are actually committed. I'm really curious, how do you guys find the contributors? Yeah, so our, um, our first set of contributors was really, um, all of our friends you know people who we knew who um not all of our friends but you know people who were who we knew who were artists who would be interested and be uh generous enough to experiment with us because we for the first couple episodes didn't really know how it was going to work like we had this beautiful pile of material and like who knows what it was going to become so we wanted people that we knew would be very generous and willing to um (laughs) to fail with us if that's how the project ended up going and then the second round um, has been a little more diverse I and mean, diverse in terms of like age ranges. Um, there's a couple people that I don't know at all. Um, and Jane, do you want to speak a little bit about kind of the process of recruiting those people? Sure. So, right. And I, I mentioned that Holly sort of is our artistic director. I'm, I'm the managing director. So I do kind of the administrative stuff and the, the like contributor network, like, I don't want to say management, but you know, like correspondence and planning. Um, and so, right, the recruitment process can be as simple as like, I have encountered you somewhere, like the two of you might expect at some point to be um, tapped, you know, or at least I might, I might shoot you an email sometime and say, are you interested in contributing? Like your perspectives would be, yeah, your perspectives would be really appreciated. Um, of course everyone's are welcome and we do have like a a link on our website too where folks can can kind of fill out a form and just sign up to do it um but in general they've met one of us somewhere uh that's not something that we see as like that kind of constriction i guess is not um long-term a goal we would love for this to be something where folks just like I don't know, are so interested in it that they want to just like parade it through um, and take whatever times we need to assign. Um, but but right, we're still in kind of earlier stages. Uh, and so it's largely folks from our like extended networks um, and then folks that our contributors, our first few rounds of contributors know. Um, so it is starting to expand. The tree is, is growing. Um, but yeah, it, it varies wildly and it depends kind of on where you find certain people. Because um, we've got, right, we've, like Holly mentioned, we've got a huge age range in our contributor group, but we've also got like a, a very wide range of professional, like occupation is, is hugely different. There are artists um, and, and makers and art historians and art writers, but there's also like a health policy analyst and um, an environmentalist and a feminist journalist. Um, 
it's it's a a funny like motley crew of folks from all over the united states we'd love for it to be from all over the world um we've got to get you in from perth <laughs> clarissa um and get some moments from from australia um so yeah i mean that's i, I might be rambling a bit there um but yeah, that's that's kind of the way that we get people. Um, we expand that. We want the the network to kind of expand as much as it can because um, we are we're trying to explore the ways that that the experience of being is um, super idiosyncratic to every individual body, but is also right like weirdly overlapping between folks who have nothing necessarily to do with one another, like spatiotemporally. Yeah, it kind of feels like with both of us, the first round was friends and people we knew. Um, so the first round was kind of like training wheels. And then the training wheels come off once you get people contacting you who aren't your friends. And it's suddenly like, oh, this is like a strictly professional relationship. Like we're really doing this thing. Like this random person from the UK wants to write an article and that's totally fine. We know how to do this now. <laughs> but there was definitely a lot of trial and error with our friends. Um, I'd be interested to hear if you two have been surprised by the spread of like your reach based on data. Um, so what I mean by that is we have a website and you can go in and see an interactive map and little hotspots for where everybody is who clicks on your website. And it's been so fascinating to see where the hotspots are because both of us thought they'd be probably like, I don't know, in our hometowns and like people on our direct social media. But we have hotspots in like Thailand, we have hotspots in Colorado. And it's like, how did this, how did this get here? Like the internet is this weird rhizome and you kind of just like get linked to linked to linked until you pop up on somebody's university page in India. And then you get like five submissions from India. Like it's been so fascinating. Um, I'd be curious to hear if you two had a similar kind of like internet rhizome experience. I haven't, I, I guess I haven't looked as closely at our analytics in a while uh, in terms of like where folks are tuning in from, for instance. Um, but that's, I I think, right, like we, we should probably be like trolling the calls for submissions pages of various sites and, and lists um, soon too. It, it, it's interesting to me to think sometimes about idiosyncrasy as a publisher because I think it is actually um, not in quite the same way as we've said, but like it is a place where right people are putting their ideas out into the world um, in this sort of in a pseudo mediated way. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I Holly, do you have thoughts about this? Like we've gotten. I know that there have definitely been like folks tuning in from places that that like I can't account for with just, you know, I know so and so. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that we have a map on our podcast, like platform, although maybe we do and we haven't found it yet, because that would be cool to know. I'm always surprised by like, even at Wash U, even as sort of, I don't know, it's both an insular, but also kind of a huge community. The people who'll just be like, "Oh, you're the idiosyncrasy one." I'm like, "Oh, I, I guess I am." How do you How do you know about that? It's interesting to see, at least amongst like my extended network, where it's kind of popped up in places I didn't expect. But I would love this map thing. <laughs> Sounds very useful, oh, yeah. very cool. It's the first time that I have had access to a data set of my own project. 
So it's the first time we've been on the other end of the computer and been like, oh, like, what do these cookies mean? And so that's why I've like nerded out about it. Um, but I'm not normally a person that like analyzes data. That was, the, I guess that was like a concrete way to see how far we've come, how big it's grown. So I like, I, I'm curious to see if you guys have been, were there any moments where you've been like, wait a minute, like maybe we've done a thing this is real. I don't know. There were a couple of times kind of like when we would get submissions from, you know, advanced PhD students or international people, we would be like, we've done it. We're here. <laughs> we just got to keep going now. Seeing it on Spotify on my end was huge because I do sort of all the technical things. Um, so, you know, making sure it gets uploaded and everything. And just to see the logo that we created and the like this podcast, sonic work of art, whatever you want to call it, on Spotify felt huge. Um, yeah, it was just kind of surreal to see something that you've worked on for so long go out into the world and then suddenly you have no more control over it. You know, it's it's there and anyone could find it. And I thought that moment was really, really special. I also felt like um, we, we, we did an interview um, with one of our colleagues here at WashU um, like just sort of about idiosyncrony that appeared in the journal ASCPJ, like the the online open source journal for the Association for the Study of the Arts of the Present. Um, and that also was like one of those little like really sweet milestone moments, which is being like, oh, cool, like, right. Some people who I don't know are going to know what this is now. Um, like it, you know, it really, it, yeah, it's taken off and it's, and it's like going to be seen or heard uh, as the case may be, I suppose. I was thinking too along those data lines you mentioned, Clarissa, about like the way that both of our projects do interface, like because they are on the internet, there is this beautiful kind of rhizomatic connectedness, but you do also interface with like behemoth corporations and like extant platforms that have a lot of quirks or like a lot of flaws to be frank. Uh, and so like, you know, I know that we've dealt with some limitations and I, Holly can speak to them better than me because right, like she is our, our tech whiz too. Um, but like, I know when I first was working with y'all, you were based on Medium. And now that you like, you've emerged with this beautiful um, freestanding website. Um, I would love to hear a little about, right, like, like navigating platforms or figuring out fair use, um, the kinds of things, you know, like institutional negotiation that you've had to perform as like the little guy. Oh yeah, so I have a lot of opinions about this. Um, Medium was challenging because in one way, anybody can go on there, which is really incredible and liberating. But on the other hand, anyone can go on there. Medium was a great platform to begin with, but Ultimately, we wanted something where we knew that we were giving our readers like an ad-free, like data safe experience. Like no, that none of it, none of their data is going to be manipulated by an ad or something. Um, like it's just us having it to think that it's cool that it, we're getting readers from all over the world. So that was kind of why we decided to pivot to our own platform and also the necessary limitations of Medium because it's universal, it's got universal templates and you can't do a lot. And especially with things like poetry, you couldn't control the spacing of the lines, which bugged me so much because that's really important. And a writer puts so much into the way that it looks. And then to just have it like generally spit out on the other side of this like factory line template through medium was kind of disheartening. 
Um, so we ultimately switched to our own platform for freedom of design and for freedom of data. Um, that being said, it was really expensive and it took a lot of time to have our own platform. Um, and because we're free, we are essentially like brunting the costs of what it takes to give a reader an ad-free experience, which right now is fine. We've got that set up, it makes sense, but it's kind of challenging long-term because to have an ad-free spot on the internet, somebody is paying somewhere. And so right now, you know, we're absorbing that cost, but it's definitely kind of a challenge down the road for us. I think with you two, is it kind of similar? Um, I know, of course, there's no ads in your audio. No, but the price we pay for not having advertisements is our podcasts do delete themselves after three months. Um, so it's all freely available on our website. Um, we have a way through like using Google Drive and everything that anyone can access it and download it for free. The problem is um, our podcast hosting service requires quite a bit of money to keep your um, data on Spotify and on the service. And it's something you kind of keep paying forever as far as I can understand. Um, it's not something that either Jay or I as graduate students felt like we could you know, do financially. Um, so we're still kind of working through that. We've explored some options, but it seems like to have a podcast, you have to have a little bit of money if you're not gonna do ads. So it's, it sounds like it's a similar situation to what y'all have come up against. We joke all the time on the phone <laughs> about how we're going to know we've truly made it when we have our Casper mattress ad or, you know, our uh, Hello HelloFresh. Blue Apron. Blue Apron. Um, you know, I guess maybe we're doing an ad for those companies now by even mentioning it on this podcast. <laughs> this um, is now an ad. <laughs> I know. Sorry. Um, but but I just think it's, I do think it's funny because, right, we, we have thought about this and it's like, where would that go? Um, um, in idiosynchrony everything in idiosynchrony is like they're these quotidian moments but they are also all meticulously placed um and so it's it's interesting because right as you think about how advertisements are kind of part of the text and and how it doesn't make sense for them to be disintegrated like you were talking about carissa um i totally get it like yeah and and that's that is kind of why it's a running joke for us maybe we'll need to do a spoof one at some point i feel like you're the ad would definitely have to be like you talking instead of just like, you know, like preset text because it would totally ruin the intimacy of it if in the middle. It's just like, you know, here's this product. Yeah. yeah, like yeah. Somebody's just rolled over in their bed to give like a 5 a.m. report and then suddenly it's like blue apron. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> and it feels like a betrayal of trust too because we, um, if we ever receive any grant funding or anything like that, we will pay our contributors. But right now we're not. And so to do an advertisement would feel so wrong. It would also feel like a betrayal to like, you know, their 5 a.m. commitment, their gift to us, and we're like monetizing it for some huge corporation. It just doesn't fit. I don't think it fits. Yeah, we are in the exact same boat where we would love to pay our contributors. We have no money. It's all volunteer work at this point. Um, and we're in this, in this place where both of us can do this right now, but of, of course it's challenging to do something like that long-term, but also the fact that there's no money involved makes it this kind of like pure, we're all just doing it because we love it. There's no taxes, like nothing is complicated yet, which 
is also wonderful in my experience with these sorts of projects. Once things start to get monetized, a lot of that kind of fades away. Like once people are getting paid, it's it's not the same kind of like labor of love thing. But on the other hand, writers should absolutely get paid for their time and their work. And we yeah. are at the end of the day, creating a platform where we get content by putting up free writing, which is not something that I like fundamentally agree with. It's just that we don't know how to financially make it make sense at the moment. But yeah, and it's kind of one of the more challenging things to navigate for sure. It's like, of course we wanna pay everybody, but how? <laughs> right, and yet it does feel more important still to do the collaboration, of course. Like it, that's, I, I, that's like, it feels implicit, of course, in what you said. But it's, there's this weird way in which it's like, you know, yeah, this is hard and we don't have it all figured out, but like it is worth it to be doing it now. Yeah, there have been a few times where all of the, I guess, struggles, um, establishing it, funding, kind of, you know, things that you worry about about it, feel worth it when we get to publish the work. And so it's like that beautiful spark of a day where we're sharing the work because we, we typically do one piece a week. Um, so we're sharing the work, we're blasting everyone on Instagram. Um, we're worshiping this thing that someone has sent us, you know, I'm sure being worried whether or not we would accept it. We've loved it. We've put it out there. And so we've got like one day a week where we feel really good about it. We're sharing someone's work. They feel fulfilled and reassured in what they're doing. We feel reassured. And then the rest of the week goes by and we're like, oh no, what are we going to do? But at least you do get the the knowledge that you are doing something important uh, that is helping another person. Yeah, that's the best. When they send us an email afterwards telling us like, oh, this has been a fulfilling experience or it's been wonderful for X, Y, and Z reasons. It's like, oh. or you can tell how excited they are. Maybe it's their first time publishing something. And this is like that encouraging boost they needed at the beginning to get going. Totally just makes it 100% worth it. <laughs> I have like an unrelated question. Um, how do you guys pick the times? It's really intuitive. Jay and I like get on the phone and we just sort of the times happen. It's really, it's a hard process to describe, but we say, okay, we're going to pick some times. And a lot of times like it'll, we'll kind of land on the same one unexpectedly. It's like very fortuitous. And I know it sounds a little bit mystical, but it, they just sort of occur and they, they, we know they're the right times when they feel like the right times, which is such an unsatisfying answer, but we no, try to make perfect. them diverse. Idiosyncrony really is like for, for the two of us in terms of the actual like editing and and production of, of the project. It's a very um, like, a process that happens pretty much on the phone. Um, like there's, we go on a, like I go on a th like three hour walk like every week or every other week um, with Holly. I don't know what Holly is doing or where Holly is located <laughs> during those times, I guess, but um, like, and we just like talk through everything that is pertinent. And so if that happens to be, you know, setting the foundations for the next cycle um, of idiosynchrony, then right, it's going to be like, what times make sense? What times did we, what did, what times did we do last time? Because right, each episode is based on a particular time. Um, and so we want to like, we don't want them to feel lopsided. We want to think about the contributors and kind of what we're asking them to record. Um, because you have to think like, 
do we have someone to do a 4 a.m. recording or is that going to be like, you know, a, like a horrible thing to ask of, of everyone that's volunteered? And right, like Holly said, like it starts to feel right. I mean, there's this weird way where you're just like, okay, well, because we've got 9 a.m. and 1 p.m., we need 11 p.m. I, I, and I can't, I can't exactly say why. It just, it needs to be balanced. Um, is, right. I mean, is it intuitive like that for y'all in the selection process? Does it sort of, do, do the things that you want to revise or the things that you know you want to publish right away just float to the top? Um, I would say maybe it's more difficult sometimes than others. So we normally meet once a week, um, go over all of the Normally, Clarissa beats me to the punch, already has her notes for all of the new submissions. Um, so then I read them, fill in my notes, fill in, you know, my additions. We've normally got pros and cons, or not necessarily cons, but like pros and edits. And so we'll go through them, have our notes, and then we normally have our weekly meeting to talk about it. And so sometimes we're like, oh, yeah, that one's easy. That one's easy you know, no problem. This one needs a little bit of work. Um, but it's kind of a, we don't really do it on the, the phone or our, during our conversations. We typically elaborate or like explain our reasoning more. And then we've always got like meeting notes to talk about. Mostly because we're on like the, the really different time zone things. Um, otherwise, I think we'd be texting each other constantly about stuff. <laughs> Yeah, we had to like set up boundaries of like, maybe let's just email when it's about Tesserae because otherwise it would be constant texting. And I would flood Caroline's phone while she was asleep and vice versa, obviously because of the 13 hour time difference. Um, but yeah, we kind of have to prep beforehand as well because if it's an article that's 25 pages long, we couldn't go through it together. So we kind of talk a lot in like Google doc comments as well. But as far as kind of like organizing a calendar goes, we try to like disperse things based on theme, but generally we fill them in as they come. Um, so it's not a whole lot of like uh, logic behind the sequencing of publishing, um, more that it just, it's kind of organic and it comes when it comes. We try to like accept a really wide range. So if we haven't published anything on, you know, a certain genre or medium or whatever, um, then it's like, oh yes, we haven't done something on this before, so that kind of helps it a little bit. But can I say something about idiosyncrony? Is that how it's said? Yeah. Okay, cool. I've been saying your project this whole time because I didn't know how oh, to say it. Idiosyncrony. That's okay. okay, cool. Um, something that I love about that, I was listening, I like binge listened yesterday while making lunch. And something that was so incredible about it, I'm sure you probably get this all the time, is how it's this amazing moment when like normally when you don't know somebody, there's social codes and people aren't telling you all their innermost thoughts. But this is this strange kind of limbo digital space where you get to peer into everybody's thoughts that you don't know. And you become privy to these inner dialogues that normally you would only get if you were somebody's best friend or if you were spending like two weeks with them traveling and you're just like constantly sharing whatever's on your brain. Um, but with, it, with everybody being strangers, um, it kind of feels like a confessional of the mundane in some ways. Like I grew up Catholic. I'm not Catholic anymore, but I grew up Catholic and it reminded me kind of of the confessional because it's like 
everybody's just telling you things, except you're not judging them or giving them Hail Marys or anything. You're just like absorbing it in a beautiful way. But listening to it was really wonderful. Like it made me want to write creatively. Um, so thank you for putting it out into the world. I just wanted to let you guys know that it's really beautiful. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I definitely agree and wanted to tell you guys. So I am one of those people who will listen to YouTubers talk about whatever the heck they're doing, uh, whatever they're interested in. But at that point, you get to know them, um, I guess, over a period of time. And the thing I love about idiosyncrasy is like right off the bat, you really don't know anything about who's talking or necessarily whose voices they are, but you know them in like a different way it is so cool thank you it's special that does feel like the goal right it's like there's we're in this moment where like in a lot of senses that's the only option it, where where if, if you have established relationships with folks you can go on you know a three-hour phone call every once in a while and catch up but if you don't know someone it's really hard to make new connections because like, right, you don't, you don't have access to just like all the different choices we might make to get to know someone, whether it's, you know, going on a walk or um, going out to drinks or whatever, there, there are a lot less choices. And so, right, it's this way of, of getting to know each other um, without, without necessarily as many details. Like <laughs> there's, there's a lot of um, that, that alternate relationality feels really central it's like this is a way of of being social together that we are just starting to practice because we we didn't know we could do it this way and I I don't know I also really like your confessional of the mundane that's what you said right Clarissa yeah, yeah. like we need to like write it down because I think that's there I too and and I've been intrigued by that as well thinking um, as I go into like curate clips from folks submissions sometimes I know people sometimes I don't uh, and it's really interesting to hear like what people want to share and how they want to share it or if they want to share it directly with me sometimes they do seem to be kind of addressing me maybe because I'm the one who's like set up the recording times or other times right it's very clear that they're aware of an audience and like the differences in the ways folks decide to approach it are are very significant um and yet like right still fit together really beautifully and right i i see that as something like the anachronistic quality of tesserae is also really beautiful and there's another alignment there like it yeah. feels like there's a lot of aesthetic overlap between the two of us so i think talking about futures makes a lot of sense um and it, like it feels like we've been talking for five minutes but it's been like almost an hour um so I guess, yeah, what are y'all's goals for Tessary? Like, how do you envision it growing? Or, you know, whether whether or not you know it would be like the next, like, it doesn't have to be like the next milestone, but right, like, what's something else you'd like to see it do? How would you like to see it stretch? We would eventually like to have some sort of print publication that maybe compiles certain essays from the year or has longer research essays in it that are just too long for like an online forum. But obviously print is a whole another ball game and it's, there's so many complicated things about that. Um, and of course it, it involves 
uh, investing and then selling. And so there's like money involved there, which is complicated, um, but definitely some sort of annual print edition is, is hopefully in our future. So I was thinking today about kind of our, what were our original goals for the publication? And we originally had this beautiful timeline of we'll release our first call for submissions for short form work in uh, I think September, October, and then hopefully we'll have enough submissions and then we'll sometime in March, I think we'll send out our call for long form submissions to be able to publish our magazine in print in May and like just like so beautifully ambitious um striving for like the best we could do and I definitely think some of the hiccups have been like hmm maybe let's make our website first maybe let's reprioritize some of these things um seeing kind of like some of the smaller victories in us publishing instead of just trying to vie for the traditional position of print and I also think that in a lot of ways online is so dominating now that if print happens, cool. If it doesn't, I think we'll be okay. It would definitely be a really awesome thing to to see it in print. I've always been a big magazine person. So, but I don't know, I guess like uh, other goals we've, we've kind of re reformed are to, you know, spread the calls for submissions more places, um, try to get further exposure send it out to maybe people we didn't before and we've revised our call to now just open so anyone can send anything uh, anyone can submit so just wanting to see what's out there and what people are willing to put out there yeah but we don't have we don't necessarily have like a 10-year plan for the publication partially because it's volunteer work and partially because we're just like living with liminality in crazy COVID times and both of us you know ha have large amounts of free time sometimes and then maybe in the future won't so we're really kind of just like fluidly embracing what can we do now and like how can we make it the best it can be but also let's not lock in any hard plans um, because you don't if there's anything this year has taught us is that you really don't know where you're going to be in six months or what your time commitments are going to look like. Um, so kind of just, you know, chugging along, kicking along. Yeah, even, the publication. even the publication schedule, like, like this week, I think we're going to meet after this. And I don't think we really have anything for this week because I was supposed to write something and have not quite gotten to it which is kind of just how life goes. You know, so many things sure get is. in the way. Uh, you really want to do something and you're close to it. And then something else lands on your desk and you're like, all right, well, I just got to reprioritize. Um, and so big picture, it's, I think it's okay to do that. It's our yeah. thing. We have to constantly remind ourselves it's our thing. It's our baby. We do not have to publish this week if we don't feel like it. No one's going to come after us. <laughs> nothing bad is going to happen. It's not like we'll lose all of our followers or whatnot. So I guess remembering that we are the owners uh, is something we keep having to do. What about you two? Yeah, I think we're in kind of a similar boat in terms of the future. Jane, I've talked a lot about we'll do this as long as we want to. <laughs> There's not like a set end date. 
it's not something that we're like, we're doing this for the next 50 years. I will die editing an episode of idiosynchrony. It's like, you know, it's gonna, it's gonna last as long as it feels relevant and important. Um, but I do think it's gonna last for a while, I hope. Um, I hope. The, another thing Jane and I have talked about is maybe um, experimenting with media a little bit, you know, like doing some sort of installation seems like it fits, like spatializing these times could be really exciting. And we've, we've played with a couple different ideas of what that could be when, you know, when it's safe to be back in space together. Um, I don't know, what else, Jay? Yeah, definitely. I'm thinking about the the idea of an installation or some kind of sonic immersion experience. Um, but I'm also very open to the idea of collaborating with theater makers in a different kind of attempt to spatialize it. I think this project, because it's audio form, which feels sort of, you know, it's dominated by one like sort of space in the sensorium. Um, it feels like it um, is, is like ripe, I guess, to transmediate, um, that it would make a lot of sense for it to emerge as, as a theater production or as something involving video or, you know, as something textual or something photographic or, you know, there are all these different ways. Um, but just thinking about how this idea of, right, like collective, collective, but also dissonant experiences of a given moment, um, that's right, that's not specific to the medium that we're working in. But otherwise, yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty in line with y'all. Like just it, having it be sustainable and happy is the future vision, um, regardless of how long that, that horizon might be. Probably one of the most important things that came of this for me and Caroline, um, and hopefully you two have had a similar experience, um, is that for the first time out of grad school, the two of us were able to have an idea and then manifest it and see that if we collaborated and if we put in the time, the thing in our head can become a reality and other people can engage with it and it can go on to have a life of its own. So yeah, like probably for me, the most important thing about Tesserae was that it was a reminder that I can do things like this um, and I have the support system around me and people are gonna be interested and we can continue to create these amazing spaces and platforms as they're needed to the situation, um, which has been super, super liberating. I totally agree. It's made me much more open to, well, we did this. What, what else could we do? What else could I do? It, you know, you sit and watch everyone else do it. And then you're like, surely I won't. Surely I'm not going to start this, but then you do it and it does well. And you're, proud of yourself and then you can move on to the other thing and just keep creating. Um, but I guess it was the first step. Awesome. I think, I think that probably just about does it y'all. It's been a really wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. It was so inspiring to talk with you all today. Thank oh, you. Like, no, thank you. Thank good. you guys for inviting us so much. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. This was very fortuitous.